0: Section 23 of The Waning of the Middle Ages A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tasha Hobbs Peterson the waning of the middle ages by johann huizinga translated by frederick john Hopman, chapter nineteen art and life part two the problem for us is to determine the quality of taste or bad taste to which all this bears witness it goes without saying that the mythological and allegorical tenor of these entremets cannot interest us But what was the artistic execution worth? What people looked for most was extravagance and huge dimensions. The Tower of Gorkham, represented on the table of the Banquet of Bruges in 1468, was 46 feet high. La Marche says of a whale which also figured there, and certainly this was a very fine entremet, for there were more than 40 persons in it. People were also much attracted by mechanical marvels, living birds flying from the mouth of a dragon conquered by Hercules, and such like curiosities, in which to us any idea of art is altogether lacking. The comic element was of a very low class. Boars blow the trumpet in the tower of Gorkum, elsewhere goats sing a motet, wolves play the flute, four large donkeys appear as singers and all this in honor of charles the bold who was a good musician i would not however suggest that there may not have been many an artistic masterpiece among these pretentious and ridiculous curiosities let us not forget that the men who enjoyed these gargantuan decorations were the patrons of the brothers van eyck and of roger van der Weyden, the duke himself rolin the donor of the altars of bohn and of autun Jean Chevreau, who commissioned Rogier to paint the Seven Sacraments, now at Antwerp. What is more, it was the painters themselves who designed these showpieces. If the records do not mention Jean Van Eyck or Rogier as having contributed to similar festivities, they do give the names of the two Marmions and Jacques de Rey. For the fete of 1468, the services of the whole corporation of painters was requisitioned they were summoned in haste from ghent brussels louvain Tyrlemont, mons quesnoy valenciennes douay cambrai arras ly ypres courtrai oudenarde to work at bruges it is impossible to believe that their handiwork was ugly the thirty vessels decorated with the arms of the duke's domains the sixty images of women dressed in the costume of their country Carrying fruit in baskets and birds in cages, I should be ready to give more than one mediocre church picture to see them. We may go further, at the risk of being thought paradoxical, and affirm that we have to take this art of showpieces, which has disappeared without leaving a trace, into account, if we would thoroughly understand the art of Klaus Sluter. Of all the forms of art, sepulchral sculpture is most fettered by the exigencies of its purpose the sculptors charged with making the ducal tombs were not left free to create beautiful things they had to exalt the glory of the deceased prince the painter can always give free rein to his imagination he is never obliged to limit himself strictly to commissioned work it is probable on the other hand that the sculptor of this epoch rarely worked except on specified tasks, the motifs of his art, moreover, are limited in number and fixed by a rigorous tradition. It is true that painters and sculptors are equally servants of the ducal household. Jan van Eyck, as well as Sluter and his nephew, Claus de Verve, bore the title of Varlet de chambre, but for the two latter, the service is far more real than for the painters the two great dutchmen whom the irresistible attraction of french art life drew for good from their native country were completely monopolized by the duke of burgundy claus sluter inhabited a house at dijon which the duke placed at his disposal there he lived as a gentleman but at the same time as a servant of the court his nephew and successor claus de verve is the tragic type of an artist in the service of princes kept back at dijon year after year to finish the tomb of jean sanspour for which the financial means were never forthcoming he saw his artistic career so brilliantly begun ruined by fruitless waiting thus the art of the sculptor at this epoch is a servile art on the other hand sculpture is generally little influenced by the taste of an epoch because its means its material and its subjects are limited And little subject to change when a great sculptor appears he creates everywhere and always that optimum of purity and simplicity which we call classic the human form and its drapery are susceptible of few variations the masterpieces of carving of the different ages are very much alike and for us sluter's work shares this eternal identity of sculpture nevertheless on examining it more closely We notice that especially the art of Sluter bears the marks of being influenced by the taste of the time, not to call it Burgundian taste, as far as the nature of sculpture permits. Sluter's works have not been preserved as they were, and as the master intended them to be. We must picture the Well of Moses as it was in 1418, when the papal legate granted an indulgence to whosoever should come to visit it in a pious spirit it must be remembered that the well is but a fragment a part of a calvary with which the first duke of burgundy of the house of valois intended to crown the well of his carthusian monastery at champemol the principal part that is to say the crucified christ with the virgin saint john and mary magdalene had almost completely disappeared before the french revolution there remains only the pedestal surrounded by the statues of the six prophets who predicted the death of the saviour with a cornice supported by angels the whole composition is in the highest degree a representation une oeuvre parlante a show closely related as such to the tableau vivant or the personages of the princely entries and of the banquets there too the subjects were borrowed for choice from the prophecies relating to the coming of Christ. Like these personages, the figures surrounding the well hold scrolls containing the text of their predictions. It rarely happens in sculpture that the written word is of such importance. We can only fully realize the marvelous art here displayed in hearing these sacred and solemn words: "Imo labit eum universa filiorum Israel ad exodus twelve six and the whole assembly of the congregation of israel shall kill it in the evening this is moses sentence foderunt manus meas et pedes meos de omnia osa mea psalm twelve sixteen seventeen they pierced my hands and my feet they told all my bones this is david's jeremiah says o vos omnes qui transitis per viam attendite et videte si es dolor sicut dolor meus lamentations of jeremiah one twelve all ye that pass by behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow isaiah daniel zachariah all announce the death of the lord it is like a threnody of six voices rising up to the cross now in this feature lies the essence of the work the gestures of the hands by which the attention is directed to the texts are so emphatic and there is an expression of such poignant grief on the faces that the whole is in some danger of losing the ataraxia which marks great sculpture it appeals too directly to the spectator compared with the figures of michelangelo those of sluter are too expressive too personal if more had come down to us of the calvary supported by the prophets than the head and the torso of christ of a stark majesty this expressive character would be still more evident the spectacular character of the calvary of champ also came into prominence in the luxurious decorations of the work we must picture it in all its polychrome splendour for jean malou the artist and hermann of cologne the gilder were not sparing of vivid colors and brilliant effects the pedestals were green the mantles of the prophets were gilt their tunics red and azure with golden stars isaiah the gloomiest of all wore a dress of gold cloth the open spaces were filled with golden suns and initials the pride of blazonry displayed itself not only round the columns below the figures but on the cross itself Which was entirely gilt. The extremities of the arms of the cross, shaped like capitals, bore the coats of arms of Burgundy and Flanders. Can one ask for better proof of the spirit in which the duke conceived this great monument of his piety? As a crowning bizarrerie, a pair of spectacles of gilded brass, the work of Hannequin de Haque, were placed on Jeremiah's nose. This serfdom of a great art controlled by the will of a princely patron is tragic but it is at the same time exalted by the heroic efforts of the great sculptor to shake off his shackles the figures of the pleurants around the sarcophagus had for a long time been an obligatory motif in burgundian sepulchral art these weeping figures were not meant to express grief in general the sculptor was bound to give a faithful representation of the funeral cortege with the dignitaries present at the burial but the genius of sluter and his pupils succeeded in transforming this motif into the most profound expression of mourning known in art a funeral march in stone is it so certain after all that we are right in thinking of the artist as struggling with the lack of taste and refinement of his patron it is quite possible that Sluder himself considered Jeremiah's spectacles a very happy fine. In the men of that epoch, artistic taste was still blended with the passion for what is rare or brilliant. In their simplicity, they could enjoy the bizarre as if it were beauty. Objects of pure art and articles of luxury and curiosity were equally admired. Long after the Middle Ages, the collections of princes contained works of art, mixed up indiscriminately with knick-knacks made of shells and of hair wax statues of celebrated dwarfs and such-like articles at the castle of hesden where side by side with art treasures the engin de basement, contrivances for amusement usual in princely pleasure-grounds were found in abundance caxton saw a room ornamented with pictures representing the history of jason the hero of the golden fleece the artist is unknown but was probably a distinguished master to heighten the effect a machinery was annexed which could imitate lightning thunder snow and rain in memory of the magic arts of media in the shows at the entries of princes inventive fancy stuck at nothing when isabella of bavaria made her entry into paris in thirteen eighty nine there was a white deer with gilt antlers and a wreath round its neck, stretched out on a lit de justice, moving its eyes, antlers, feet, and at last raising a sword. At the moment when the queen crossed the bridge to the left of Notre Dame, an angel descended, by means of well-constructed engines, from one of the towers, passed through an opening of the hangings of blue taffeta with golden fleur-de-lis, which covered the bridge, and put a crown on her head then the angel was pulled up again as if he had returned to heaven of his own accord philip the good and charles the seventh treated to similar descents Lefebvre de saint-remy greatly admired the spectacle of four trumpeters and twelve nobles on artificial horses sallying forth and caracoling in such a way that it was a fine thing to see time the destroyer has made it easy for us to separate pure art from all these gewgaws and bizarre trappings which have completely disappeared this separation which our aesthetic sense insists upon did not exist for the men of that time their artistic life was still enclosed within the forms of social life art was subservient to life its social function was to enhance the importance of a chapel a donor a patron or a festival but never that of the artist fully to realize its position and scope in this respect is now hardly possible too little of the material surroundings in which art was placed and too few of the works of art themselves have come down to us hence the priceless value of the few works by which private life outside courts and outside the church is revealed to us in this respect no painting can compare with the portrait of jean arnolfini and of his wife by jan van eyck in the national gallery the master who for once need not portray the majesty of divine beings nor minister to aristocratic pride here freely followed his own inspiration it was his friends whom he was painting on the occasion of their marriage Is it really the merchant of Lucca, Jean Arnafin, as he was called in Flanders, who is represented? Jan van Eyck painted this face twice. The other portrait is at Berlin. We can hardly imagine a less Italian-looking physiognomy, but the description of the picture in the inventory of Margaret of Austria, Hernoul Lepine with his wife in a chamber, leaves little room for doubt. However this may be, the persons represented were friends of van Eyck. He himself witnesses to it, by the ingenious and delicate way in which he signs his work, by an inscription over the mirror, Johannes de Eyck, 1434. Jan van Eyck was here. Only a moment ago, one might think. The sound of his voice still seems to linger in the silence of this room. All that tenderness and profound peace which only rembrandt was to recapture emanate from this picture that serene twilight hour of an age which we seem to know and yet sought in vain in so many of the manifestations of its spirit suddenly reveals itself here and here at last this spirit proves itself happy simple noble and pure in tune with the lofty church music and the touching folk songs of the time So perhaps we imagine a Jan van Eyck escaping from the noisy gaiety and brutal passions of court life, a Jan van Eyck of the simple heart, a dreamer. It does not require a great effort of fancy to call up the valet de chambre of the duke, serving the great lords against his will, suffering all the disgust of a great artist, obliged to belie his sublime ideal of art by contributing to the mechanical devices of a festival nothing however justifies us in forming such a conception of his personality this art which we admire bloomed in the atmosphere of that aristocratic life which repels us the little we know of the lives of fifteenth-century painters shows them to us as men of the world and courtiers the duke of berry was on good terms with his artists foissart saw him in familiar conversation with andre beauneveau in his marvellous castle of mahun sur yevre the three brothers of limburg the great illuminators come to offer the duke as a new year's present a surprise in the shape of a new illuminated manuscript which turned out to be a dummy book made of a block of white wood painted to look like a book in which there were no leaves and nothing was written jan van eyck without doubt moved constantly in court circles the secret diplomatic missions entrusted to him by the duke required a man of the world he passed moreover for a man of letters reading classic authors and studying geometry did he not by an innocent whim disguise in greek letters his modest device can" as i can the intellectual and moral life of the fifteenth century seems to us to be divided into two clearly separate spheres. On the one hand, the civilization of the court, the nobility, and the rich middle classes, ambitious, proud, and grasping, passionate, and luxurious. On the other hand, the tranquil sphere of the devotio moderna, of the imitation of Christ, of Reusbrecht, and of St. Colette one would like to place the peaceful and mystic art of the brothers van eyck in the second of these spheres but it belongs rather to the other devout circles were hardly in touch with the great art that flourished at this time in music they disapproved of counterpoint and even of organs the rule of windesheim forbade the embellishment of the singing by modulations and thomas acampus said if you cannot sing like the nightingale and the lark then sing like the crows and the frogs, which sing as God meant them to. The music of Dufay, Bousnois, Ochegum, developed in the chapels of the courts. As to painting, the writers of the Devotio Moderna do not speak of it. It was outside their range of thought. They wanted their books in a simple form and without illuminations. They would probably have regarded the altarpiece of the Lamb as a mere work of pride, and actually did so regard the Tower of Utrecht Cathedral. The great artists generally worked for other circles than those of the devout townspeople. The art of the Brothers Van Eyck and of their followers, though it sprang up in municipal surroundings and was fostered by town circles, cannot be called a bourgeois art. The court and the nobility exercised too powerful an attraction. Only the patronage of princes permitted the art of miniature to raise itself to the degree of artistic refinement which characterizes the work of the brothers of Limburg and the artists of the hours of Turin. The employers of the great painters were, besides the princes themselves, the great lords, temporal or spiritual, and the great upstarts with whom the Burgundian epoch abounds, all gravitating towards the court the ground for the difference between franco-flemish and dutch art in this period lies in the fact that the latter still preserves some traits of simple soberness recalling the little out-of-the-way towns such as haarlem where it was born and even dirk bouts went south and painted at louvain and brussels among the patrons of fifteenth-century art may be named jean chevreau bishop of tournay whom Escuchion designates as the donor of that work of touching and fervent piety now at antwerp the seven sacraments chevreau is the type of the court prelate as a trusted counsellor of the duke he was full of zeal for the affairs of the golden fleece and for the crusade another type of donor is represented by pierre bladelin whose austere face is seen in the middleburg altarpiece now at berlin he was the great capitalist of those times from the post of receiver at bruges his native town he rose to be paymaster-general of the duke he introduced control and economy into the ducal finances he was appointed treasurer of the golden fleece and knighted he was sent to england to ransom charles of orleans the duke wished to charge him with the administration of the finances of the expedition against the turks he employed his wealth which was the wonder of his contemporaries on works of embankment and the founding of a new town in flanders to which he gave the name of middleburg after the town in Zeeland of that name other notable donors judocus witt the canon van de pale the Croys, the Lenois, belonged to the very rich noble or burgher ancient or new of their time most famous of all is nicholas rolin The Chancellor, sprung from little people, jurist, financier, diplomat. The great treaties of the Dukes from 1419 to 1435 are his work. He used to govern everything quite alone, and manage and bear the burden of all business by himself, be it of war, be it of peace, be it of matters of finance. By methods which were not above suspicion, he amassed enormous wealth, which he spent on all sorts of pious and charitable foundations nevertheless people spoke with hatred of his avarice and pride and had no faith in the devotional feelings which inspired his pious works this man whom we see in the louvre kneeling so devoutly in the picture painted for him by jan van eyck for autun his native town and again in that by roger van der weyden destined for his hospital of Bonn passed for a mind only set on earthly things. He always harvested on earth, says Chastelaine, as though the earth was to be his abode for ever, in which his understanding erred and his prudence abased him, when he would not set bounds to that of which his great age showed him near the end. This is corroborated by Jacques Duclerc in these terms. The aforesaid Chancellor was reputed one of the wise men of the kingdom to speak temporarily for as to spiritual matters i shall be silent are we then to look for a hypocritical expression in the face of the donor of la vierge au chancellor rolin let us remember before condemning him the riddle presented by the religious personality of so many other men of his time who also combined rigid piety with excesses of pride of avarice and of lust the depths of these natures of a past age are not easily sounded in the piety interpreted by the art of the fifteenth century the extremes of mysticism and of gross materialism meet the faith pictured here is so direct that no earthly figure is too sensual or too heavy to express it van eyck may drape his angels and divine personages with ponderous and stiff brocades glittering with gold and precious stones to call up the celestial sphere he has no need of the flowing garments and sprawling limbs of the baroque style yet neither this art nor this faith is primitive by using the term primitive to designate the masters of the fifteenth century we run the risk of a misunderstanding they are primitive in a purely chronological sense in so far as for us they are the first to come and no older painting is known to us but if to this designation we attach the meaning of a primitive spirit we are egregiously mistaken for the spirit which this art denotes is the same which we pointed out in religious life a spirit rather decadent than primitive a spirit involving the utmost elaboration and even decomposition of religious thought through the imagination in very early times the sacred figures had been seen as endlessly remote awful and rigid then from the twelfth century downward the mysticism of saint bernard introduced a pathetic element into religion which contained immense possibilities of growth in the rapture of a new and overflowing piety people tried to share the sufferings of christ by the aid of the imagination they were no longer satisfied with the stark and motionless figures infinitely distant which romanesque art had given to christ and his mother all the forms and colours which imagination drew from mundane reality were now lavished by it upon the celestial beings once let loose pious fancy invaded the whole domain of faith and gave a minutely elaborate shape to every holy thing at first verbal expression had been in advance of pictorial and plastic art sculpture was still adhering to the formal rigidity of preceding ages when literature undertook to describe all the details both physical and mental of the drama of the cross a sort of pathetic naturalism arose for which the Vitae Christi, early attributed to st bonaventura supplied the model the nativity the childhood the descent from the cross each received a fixed form a vivid colouring how joseph of arimathea mounted the ladder how he had to press the hand of the lord in order to draw out the nail was all described in minute detail in the meantime towards the end of the fourteenth century pictorial technique had made so much progress that it more than overtook literature in the art of rendering these details the naive and at the same time refined naturalism of the brothers van eyck was a new form of pictorial expression but viewed from the standpoint of culture in general it was but another manifestation of the crystallizing tendency of thought which we noticed in all the aspects of the mentality of the declining middle ages instead of heralding the advent of the renaissance as is generally assumed this naturalism is rather one of the ultimate forms of development of the medieval mind the craving to turn every sacred idea into precise images, to give it a distinct and clearly outlined form, such as we observed in Gerson, in the Roman de la Rose, in Dennis the Carthusian, controlled art as it controlled popular beliefs in theology. The art of the brothers Van Eyck closes a period. End of section 23.